Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, Chase, we are ready for the end of the the third journey in Acts. Uh, Paul is been spending most of his time in Ephesus on this journey. We read about that uh, last week, and now we're uh, ready for him to return to Jerusalem. And this is going to be a little bit different from the end of the first two trips he took. Uh, he was always going back to Antioch. That was the church that had sent him out, and he had a great relationship with the brethren there. But he is really focused on getting to Jerusalem and bringing the collection that's been taken up from the Gentile Christians, getting them, getting that to the Jewish Christians. And he has spiritual purposes for that. And, um, but it's going to be interesting to see kind of the, the ominous tone that is going to happen as he is really marching to Jerusalem to suffer is what we're going to see in this uh, section here. Yep. And it certainly echoes. We'll talk more about this as we get into it. Um, but it certainly echoes, what Jesus went through on his march toward Jerusalem and the suffering that he was going to undergo. Um, and so this is uh, going to be a cool, a cool chapter as we see Paul nearing the end of his last preaching trip in the book of Acts. All right, well, let's pick up reading Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verses one through 16, and I'm reading from the English standard version. Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse one. After the uproar ceased, that is the uproar at Ephesus at the end of 19. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Purus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the next day after that, uh, the, the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. All right, so last we left, Paul, it was a little bit rough in Ephesus, wasn't it there, uh, Stephen? A little, little rough on Paul. Um, he'd spent a good while there, 
And um, we'll, we'll learn a little bit later how exactly long he had spent there. Uh, but man, th- what an ending to his time in Ephesus with this uproar that we talked about last week. Um, and so after the uproar ceases, he sends for his disciples, he exhorts them, and he has to take leave of them and goes on into Macedonia, which is the you know Philippi region up in northern Greece. And so this is um, unfortunate that he has to leave, but of course, he's got a lot more work he can do. He's not left without any work. He's got things he can go do for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. And again, this is just one section that there's, there's a lot going on here that we don't read about in the book of Acts. We actually learn a lot more about this leg of the trip when we read first and second Corinthians. Um, apparently Paul writes first Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. He'll mention that in first Corinthians 16. And he will talk a lot about what happens there's a lot of drama happening during this macedonia trip because he sent uh, titus ahead to corinth and was waiting waiting to hear how the corinthians were doing and finally finds titus somewhere in macedonia and writes second corinthians as he's relieved uh, about that And, and he's on this mission to get a collection for the needy christians in jerusalem that's one reason he's going back to jerusalem and so, again, there's a lot that Luke just kind of glazes over. Uh, that's not his purpose in writing Acts, but we find out a lot more about that from the letters that we have, uh, First and Second Corinthians. Also interesting, uh, it says in verse 2 and 3 that he spends three months in Greece, which is probably that lower region, kind of southern, what we would call southern Greece. It's likely Corinth is where he's at. And this is almost certainly where he writes the book of Romans from. Uh, from Corinth, uh, writes over to Rome and is telling them, hey, I want to come there. And by you, I want to keep going over to Spain. You know, he's got big plans for the gospel. And so he has more journeys planned after he goes to Jerusalem. But uh, the Lord is going to have some different plans for him, as we'll see as we go through. And he will reach Rome, uh, but he, he's not going to get there in the way that he expected. So he spends three months there in Greece. And guess what? Another plot is formed against Paul, uh, something he is used to at this point, and it's by the Jews, so he sets sail for Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. And verse 4 gives us an insight into his traveling companions, doesn't it, Stephen? He's got, he's got quite the posse with him there in verse yeah. 4. He, he and his squad are uh, headed back, and uh, Timothy's in there, um, bringing in some... And it's like a... It's a diverse group, too. I mean, the people from all over. Um, you, you've got some from Berea, some, some from Thessalonica, some from Derby, some from Asia. So it's, it's quite the quite the device, uh, diverse group he's got traveling with him. Yeah, and as one who's not mentioned by name, but we see pick up in verse 5 and 6, we see the, the us and the we pop yep. back in. So Luke is now with Paul and will be with Paul for most of the rest of the book of Acts. And notice the detail increases in the voyage the the details of the voyages like up to this point it's like they went there they went there but now especially you'll see it uh in verses 13 through 16 that we read and man i mean he gives like every little spot they stopped on the way back sailing along the coast of asia past ephesus he's like all these little towns and islands that they stopped at um because luke is there he's an eyewitness now to these things and like Stephen said, we saw a little bit of that back in chapter 16 when um, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, is picked up in verse 11. Uh, we see that, you know, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis. And it just gets very specific 
And then, of course, he gets left behind. And then the detail picks back up here in Chapter 20. Especially you see that in Chapter 27. Spoiler alert, when there's a shipwreck, there is just tremendous detail that Luke will record for us when we read about that. Yeah. And this is just helpful to note because it's it's a mark of historical authenticity. There's a lot of people who want to try to distance uh, acts from uh, eyewitness testimony. And, but when you read it and you see the attention to detail, it's like, this is written and it reads like someone who was there because he was there. And so this is a helpful thing as we read through Acts just for our own faith building that no, these are real events. These are real people. And this is what's happened. And that's also true with this encounter on Troas uh, after he picks up Luke uh, in Philippi, which is interesting because he left Luke in Philippi back in chapter 16. Uh, I, I don't know if he was there the whole time or not, but Luke joins them. They go to Troas and we have this detail about them gathering on the first day of the week uh, to, to break bread. And this is kind of interesting um, just because Luke doesn't say the first day of the week a whole lot. Um, this phrase does come up in all four gospels though, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that it was the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. We'll also read about this in first Corinthians when Paul's directing the churches to take up a collection every first day of the week. So this is where we get that idea that like Christians assembled on Sunday and they did that to break bread. Uh, this, this is a significant verse not so much because Luke focuses in on it, but because that phrase first day of the week isn't just, he doesn't usually tell us what day of the week it was. Um, and so this is a, an important connection to see Christians gathered on the first day of the week. They did it to take the Lord's Supper. And so Paul was there. He stays in Troas. And we're just going to see how close he is to these different brethren where he prolongs this message all the way till midnight. He doesn't sleep that night because he really wants to talk with these brethren. And of course, there's they, they want to hear him talk. That's right. And uh, there's some other excitement that happens uh, while he's in Troas, uh, while he's preaching. <laughs> this guy Eutychus falls out of the window. Um, bless his heart. I, I feel him. I've fallen asleep in my fair share of Bible classes, unfortunately. But uh, third story window is not the right place to do that because he. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's not ideal at all. It also just gives us a little peek into, you know, first century living. Uh, the biggest room that they would have had would have been kind of on this third story where it was kind of wide open, no rooms there. And that's where the Christians are assembling to meet. Uh, just, it's really cool to think of it being candlelit, maybe it being a little bit warm with all the people around. <laughs> and so Eutychus just gets sleepy and, and he falls out of the window. And um, when Stephen and I were breaking down the sections for this podcast, I had it in my head. I was like, well, what if we broke it? Verse nine, you know, you just stop reading at, at you know, uh, from the third floor and was picked up dead. And that's just the end of it. You know, it's like, Oh man, this guy died listening to a lesson. But of course the story isn't in there. Paul goes down, falls upon him, embraces him and says, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And he gets up, he also breaks the bread and eats and he talks with them a long while until the, until they break and then they left. And so the boy was alive and greatly comforted as would I, I would be too. And so would everyone else there as well. Paul raises this kid from the dead. Um, and we've seen different resurrections. Uh, obviously the one that comes to our mind most of the time is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Stephen, were there other resurrections in the Bible other than just Jesus? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, we reading through the Gospel of Mark, um, there's Jairus's daughter who's raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Famously, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in the Gospel of John. And we've seen other resurrections here in the book of Acts. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. And uh, here, Eutychus is raised from the dead. And again, this is just such a bright spot as he, we're going to see in a little bit as he's marching to Jerusalem. It's like suffering trial is coming. But this resurrection of Eutychus is just a reminder. It's just a down payment that even if we die, the Lord will raise us up again. And of course, not every Christian is raised from the dead. Paul himself will go on to die. And, um, but Eutychus here, who dies kind of out of season, he, he dies early. This resurrection is just that reminder that God has the power over death and we don't need to fear death. Um, and this would have been tremendously encouraging to the people who are encouraging Paul as he's marching to Jerusalem. It, I think it would have been encouraging to Paul himself uh, as a reminder of uh, this gospel message. But Jesus rose and he'll raise us up. Yeah. Amen. And, and I'll just say this church here in Troyes, it, it encourages me tremendously. We're encouraged by Paul's visit there. You know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how long he was there. Other, well, it says in verse six, of course, it came to them at Troyes within five days and there we stayed seven days. But I, it might be a little bit of speculation on my part. But if they're meeting this late in the day, it makes me wonder what were they doing earlier in the day? I, I would speculate that they were likely working. They were doing what they had to, to provide for their families. And yet, what are they still making a priority to do? Meet and gather on the first day of the week to break bread, to, to take the Lord's Supper, and to hear a message from God's word. Um, and so that is just so encouraging to just see the, the effort that this church is putting into their worship, putting into hearing a message from God's word, and putting into the Lord's Supper. So I find that super encouraging. Even when it's late at night, they're making this a priority. Yeah, my understanding is that uh, Sunday was a work day in the Roman Empire. Uh, this, they don't have the weekends like we do. Yeah, and, it's and, not, and it's not Sabbath day. Sabbath day, of course, was the seventh day. So traditionally, the Jews were resting on the seventh day. But this is the first day of the week. This would be when they would be working. Yep, good point. Yeah. So Paul continues on from Troas and uh, decides not to stop at Ephesus. I suspect it's one of those things where like, when you go to see people you love, you you want to spend a lot of time with them. And he's like, no, I need to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so he decides not to meet with the whole church there because he knows it's going to take too long. I would be delayed. I'd miss Pentecost. I want to get there for the feast. And so he's going to just meet with the elders, not in Ephesus, but he's going to call them down to Miletus. And uh, we'll read that section here, uh, picking up in verse 17. Yeah, let's go ahead and read that. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 17 and read down verse 38. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify 
solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. And this is just one of my favorite sections of the book of Acts because it shows us so much of Paul's heart in this place that he spent the most time in Ephesus. And his address to these elders, it, you just see his focus, his mission, the way he behaved while he was there. So many good things to point out here. Um, the elders come to him and he starts out by saying, listen, you know how I acted when I was there. And he, it, with humility and tears and trials, uh, they, they cried together. They wept together. They went through hardship together. They suffered for Jesus together. And he didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, verse 20. I love the way he says that. If there's something that was helpful, even if it was hard for them to hear, Paul was willing to say it. And he'll say in uh, verse 27, he didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. He's not holding back any part of what God wants them to know. In, you know, he's not trying to pull any punches. He's like, I've told you exactly what you needed to hear, what was really going to be helpful for you. And, and we need to be the same way. Sometimes there's something we know people need to hear, but we're scared to say it. Uh, we're shy. I know I struggle with that. And these passages help me to say like, no, like if we really love people, we tell them what God said, we tell them what they need to hear, what we need to hear too. I mean, this isn't just for them. I would want someone to do that for me. And um, he mentions here, again, this is kind of the march to Jerusalem. He says in verse 30, uh, 22, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, except everywhere I go, the spirit is telling me that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Well, what's his attitude? Verse 24. Yeah, I, I don't even consider. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, that I may finish my course in the ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify the gospel, of the grace of God. You know, I look my life. I don't even consider my life as account dear to myself. I, I don't really I don't think he's saying that I, I don't even care about my own life. I don't think it's, it's that sort of like he just doesn't respect his life. 
But his point is, I, I'm willing to sacrifice myself and all that I have for the sake of you all, and ultimately for the sake of the gospel, which is a really, really healthy attitude, by the way. It's not saying, oh, I'm worthless, and I just don't have anything to offer. My life isn't worth anything. It's not that. He's saying, my life is only worth living for someone else, for you all, for, and ultimately for God. That's where my worth is. It's, it's valued in Jesus and in the work I get to do in his kingdom. First uh, Corinthians 15, 58, the work, I, the, the work I do for God will not be done in vain. Um, we won't toil in vain is the idea because it's done in the kingdom of God. And so that's the emphasis Paul is putting on the work he's done. Um, if I can just for a second, back up, Stephen, I didn't jump in in enough time earlier. I love this idea of him teaching publicly and from house to house. Uh, Paul, Paul was not just somebody who got up on Sunday mornings and addressed the group uh, and then went back to his office for 50 hours of the week to get ready for the next Sunday. That's not what this man did. He was fully dedicated to these people um, and helping them grow both in public, yes, in his public teaching and preaching, but also from house to house. We see that phrase a couple other times in the book of Acts, um, the Christians gathering from house to house and things like that. So anyways, I just love how much attention Paul puts um, to these brethren and the time he's there in Ephesus. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, cause I meant to point that out as well. Um, I have a note in my margin to say something about that. I've missed, missed it, but, um, somebody did an exercise with me one time where they said, well, Paul declared the, the whole counsel of God to these people in Ephesus in three, three and a half years. How, if you only did it on a Sunday, you know, you got one, maybe two sermons on Sunday. How would you divide it up? How would you teach the whole Bible in three and a half years? And like, you try to divide it up and you're like, that's impossible. Like you can't fit it in. Or you try to do it topically. Like how do you cover all the things there are to cover the whole counsel of God in three and a half? It's like, it's impossible. And so it has to be publicly and from house to house. If all, if the only spiritual nourishment we're getting is once a week, man, we're going to be spiritually starving. Uh, you only ate once a week, you'd be starving. And so we need constant nourishment. And that's what Paul was providing. It, it, this wasn't just a Sunday Christian community. This was a day-to-day, house-to-house, heart-to-heart. And I just I love that we see that dimension of Paul's ministry here. And again, for three years, he says, um, night and day, he was constantly doing this. Uh, in verse 31, he'll say, for three years, I didn't see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears. And again, this wasn't just impassive intellectual teaching. He's pleading with people to do what's right. He's putting his heart out there for them. And they're going to be most sad about the fact that he says in verse um, 25, you're not, you're not going to see my face again. Um, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him exactly, but he's not expecting to be back and see them again. And so this is a really, it's a tearjerker um, for Paul to, to, to address them in this way. They're going to weep at the end of this together on the beach. And um, it's just uh, amazing again, to see Paul's heart in all of this. And he, he warns them again. Uh, he, he's addressing the shepherds. He's got some preaching he's doing in this section, right? Uh, yes, it's kind of his farewell address, but he also has those, those last few things he wants to nudge them on and to help them realize. And specifically, like Stephen was saying, he's addressing the shepherds or the, the overseers, the elders. We've talked about that word in some previous podcasts. But these 
leaders of the local church in Ephesus, he's got some final things to say to them as they go to shepherd the church of God, which by the way, that's one of my favorite phrases to describe uh, that, that role of an, of an elder. Um, and I also love how he starts this off. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Does that not add an element of importance to their role? Paul is basically saying, yeah, that a, the Holy Spirit made you all these overseers. But secondly, you're overseeing something else that someone bought. Um, and it's not just any, any purchase, ordinary purchase. You know, Stephen was like, hey, Chase, you know, I bought this watermelon. I'm not going to be back in town for a week. Can you just keep an eye on it? Make sure it doesn't go bad. Might be a horrible analogy, but that's what I went with. You know, there's not a whole, there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of value in that. But I'm like, yeah, Stephen, I'll keep an eye on it, whatever. And now we're talking about something that was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is what these elders have been entrusted with. Uh, that's a high calling, isn't it? That's right. And just as a side note, it is interesting in this passage that he calls they're called elders in verse 17. He calls them overseers in verse 28. And that word for uh, shepherd, the church of God, the ESV says care for the church of God. That's, that's the word for shepherding. And so it helps us to see that biblically elders, overseers, shepherds, it's all different names for the same role, the same office. And he warns them in verse 29 and 30, listen, I'm going to leave, but Satan's still at work. These wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, I don't know if that's from among the church or even among the elders, there's going to be people speaking twisted things, trying to draw the disciples away. There's an ongoing battle for souls here that Paul is warning them about and saying, be alert, you know, watch out for yourselves and watch out for the flock uh, because we're in this spiritual war and you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be on the watch for these souls. God has made you responsible on some level for their spiritual well-being. And he says in verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There's, what a blessing that God has given us. He's equipped us. Yes, there's going to be wolves. There's going to be challenges, but God is going to be with you and he's given you the word of his grace. So take heart. Uh, it, it can build you up. And he'll still end with saying, the things that we need to do, we need to work hard and we need to help the weak. That is like the primary role of a shepherd or really of all Christians of us helping each other. Look out for those who are weak. Watch out for the stragglers in the flock. And he ends with the words of Jesus, which is interesting because these aren't words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. But Paul records them here for us. And Jesus said these things. Uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, isn't that just exactly what Paul has been illustrating with his whole life? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And which is the point he's making. I don't think he's saying like, oh, I've coveted no one silver or gold and that like he's trying to be arrogant. About it. He's like, no, I'm doing this as an example for you all because this is how you need to treat others. Um, and this was also a pretty typical thing as far as like farewell addresses are or like some of these last words you'll give to the group of people. Um, because even Samuel and first Samuel eight will make a similar point to the people that, you know, I didn't covet anything from you all. I wasn't trying to do this for my own glory, for my own purposes, that those weren't my intentions at all. And so Paul is saying a very similar thing. You know, I'm not in this for selfish reasons. In fact, I provided for myself, you know, I didn't, I, I ministered to my own needs. 
and to the men who were with me, even those who were around me, I took care of them. Um, and so you all need to have this same type of attitude. But th- again, I just, I think you can clearly see from this text that Paul was not just this guy who they saw once a week. You know that by the way that these elders, by the, the way these brethren break down in verses 36 through 38. I mean, they completely lose it. Um, Paul kneels down. He prays with them. I love the posture there, just envisioning all of them kind of kneel down together praying, and they're weeping aloud. You know, we also heard about some loud weeping back in Acts chapter 8, whenever Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem. Um, two different circumstances, but both of them are high emotional areas. Um, these brethren will likely not see Paul again, and Paul tells them that very point blank. And so they embrace Paul, they're, they're kissing him, and they're grieving. My translation says in verse 38, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Paul has been there to help them, to encourage them these last three and a half years for however long these guys have been elders for at least the last three and a half years. And now Paul's leaving. They're going to be on their own. And so it's, it's obviously sad anytime someone we're very close to goes, but especially someone who's a spiritual leader in our life. It just hurts when they leave. Yeah. But it's beautiful to see that they, they have this hope together that ultimately they will see each other again in the resurrection. And again, it's a beautiful thought that in the Lord, Christians never really have to say goodbye. Uh, that's so important that we see that uh, over and over in the New Testament, when it talks about Christians dying, it says that they're just falling asleep. And uh, it's like Jesus said about Lazarus, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to wake him up. And there's going to come a day when we're going to all wake up and we'll be together again. And it's a yeah. beautiful promise. I think we see that hope here as well. Amen. Let's, uh, let's see what happens next um, as Paul gets out of Miletus and says goodbye to the elders here. Yeah, so we'll uh, finish the trip here. For, uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having set out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us till we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound it and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. 
And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason and Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. All right. So as Paul set sail for Miletus, uh, again, just notice the detail here in verse one. We had parted from them and had set sail. We ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship, we crossed over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and set sail. Just again, just the amount of detail that, <laughs> that Luke gives us uh, on their on their journeys. Yeah, and it's helpful to have a map in front of you. I wish we could put this up on the podcast because it's the place names kind of swirl around. And there's a lot of helpful maps you can read of Paul's journeys that show you all the little stops on the way. And you can get a sense of where he's at and all this. But again, I think that the, the notes here are again, there's just this warning after warning from the Holy Spirit that bad things are going to happen at Jerusalem. Watch out. But it doesn't deter Paul. Um, in verse four, it says when they stayed there um, at Tyre, they were warning him uh, not to go to Jerusalem, but he continues on. Uh, they stay at Caesarea. And it's interesting that we see Philip here again. Uh, we saw him back in chapter eight, you know, his uh, different uh, ways he was serving and preaching in Samaria. Uh, but now he's settled in Caesarea and he's apparently settled down. He's got four daughters who are prophesying. And, and he's, uh, he's called, he's also, it's interesting. He's called the evangelist here. I don't believe that's used of him earlier um, in, in the text in Acts at least. Um, and that word right. evangelist is just the idea of someone, literally someone who is a good newser uh, is the idea they're, they're spreading the good news. And so, just a helpful thing to see. That's what the word evangelist means. And that's, that's what Stephen and I would refer to ourselves as, as, as evangelists, people who are out spreading the good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. It's also, he mentions that he's one of the seven. It ties him all the way yes. back to yes. Acts six. And yeah. he was one of the seven guys in Jerusalem who were taking care of the widows. Obviously he's not serving in that capacity anymore, uh, but he is still serving the Lord wherever he is now as an evangelist in Caesarea. And this is where Agabus comes all the way from Judea. He comes up to Caesarea to tell them, you know, he does like the, the visual aid here, ties up his hands and feet with Paul's belt and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is going to happen to the guy who owns this belt. And so they're just begging him, apparently with tears, not to go to Jerusalem. And once again, Paul, just like he said back in um, verse 24 of chapter 20, now he says in verse 11 of chapter 21, or verse... Um, 13, excuse me. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to, to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, he doubles down, doesn't he? He's like, guys, I'm, I'm ready for this. This is something I've been preparing myself for. And listen, this isn't the only time that Paul speaks this way. You'll see him speak similarly in Philippians chapter one. Um, but I mean, this is a, this is somebody that is just comfortable with the idea of death. And I don't think he's using this flippantly. Again, I don't think Paul is just saying my life has no value. I think he's just real with himself about the possibility of death and the fact that it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. Um, and so I, I just think there is a healthy amount of, of fear that needs to go with death. I think we're all built with this fear of death in some ways, but at the same time, the Christian doesn't need to fear death in the same way the rest of the world does, because we have hope in Jesus, which is exactly what he says. I'm ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not for the name of 
Muhammad, Islam hasn't come around at this point in world history, but you know, it's not for the name of anyone else, but Jesus Christ, the one who Stephen said earlier, resurrected from the dead, the one who overcame death. So why wouldn't you want to die for the one who overcame death? It was the first fruits of, of resurrection. Um, why wouldn't you want to die for him? Um, and so it just makes sense why Paul has this type of attitude. Yeah. And again, we've mentioned this already, but it's so similar that Jesus, as he's marching to Jerusalem in the gospel of Luke, kind of the part one of the gospel of Acts, over and over, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to die. Hey, I'm going to die. Hey, I'm going to die. And there's a misunderstanding of that. And the disciples here are, are urging Paul, we don't want anything to happen to you. We love you. But Paul is just so determined. And it's like Jesus, it says in the gospel of Luke chapter nine, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and was ready to suffer and die there. And Paul doesn't know what exactly is going to happen, but he knows that there's suffering ahead. And yet he sets his face to Jerusalem in kind of the same way. And we just see Paul will say at different times, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's what we see on this march to Jerusalem is he is set to do God's will for him to accomplish his mission. And regardless of what happens to him, he wants to honor the Lord in that. And that's such a great example uh, that we see Paul uh, close with these brethren, dear to him, but he's like, I am here to serve the Lord. And that encourages us all the more, I think, uh, as we read about Paul. And he does, in fact, come here. And I appreciate the, the disciples after he's not persuaded. They say, let the will of the Lord be done. They're putting their trust in the Lord that God's will is going to be accomplished. And that is what's going to happen. He is going to be arrested. He's going to suffer in Jerusalem. But the will of the Lord is that he get to Rome. Uh, We saw that promised a couple of chapters ago, and he is going to get to Rome uh, in the midst of all this. So they do come to Jerusalem in verse 15, and uh, he brings some other disciples with him, and they uh, settle uh, in the house of Manasseh. Uh, and they, they're going to lodge there. And that sets the stage for this last phase of the book of Acts, where Paul's imprisonment and ultimately his journey to Rome. Yes. Um, so this will kind of start the domino effect. Paul will go through a, a series of trials. Um, and so our next several podcasts will be Paul on trial um, for some claims that were thrown against him by the Jews. Um, and so we'll, we'll look at that, Lord willing, starting in the next podcast. We'll pick up in chapter 21 and verse 17. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast today, uh, do please subscribe, rate, review. Um, If you have questions about what we're studying, we'd love to have you reach out to us and get to know you better, be able to study perhaps uh, one-on-one or Zoom or whatever works for you. Uh, 717-585-0949, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for other studies, other things that we're doing, uh, studies you can join in on, uh, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.